This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your story. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get our three best stories every week. Joy Neal Kidney is a listener in Iowa and has a family full of heroes. And by the way, she listens on WHO, and that's a great station in Des Moines, home of Paul Harvey and so many other broadcasting legends. And we're honored and we're grateful to be on that great flagship station in the great state of Iowa. And Joy writes and records those stories for us. She's told a few for us, actually. And here is Joy Neal Kidney and her story titled Reconciling Dad, the Farmer I Knew, with Dad, the Veteran Pilot. An engine smoked and sputtered. One propeller began to stir on the aging bomber. Then another. The third engine started to shudder and choke. Satisfying sounds of old piston engines. Finally, the last one coughed to life. A few minutes earlier, I had been sitting in the pilot's seat of that World War II flying fortress an old B-17, like the one in the movie Memphis Bell, in the seat where my dad sat seven decades ago. My dad, the farmer. As I sat in the cockpit looking out the pilot's window at the gold-tipped propellers, I tried to imagine that Iowa farmer teaching cadets to fly and later being in charge of that big four-engine bomber. In my mind's snapshot of Dad, he was wearing Big Smith overalls, where in the bib, he carried a pocket watch and a decal bullet pencil with a little metal cap to protect the lead point. Shirt sleeves rolled to the elbow, a Pioneer brand seed corn cap, tired leather work boots, and Rockford socks. Vignettes of him guzzling Coca-Cola from a small, curvy glass bottle, leaving for the field on his red Massey Harris tractor, overseeing his crops from his perch on the gate, throwing back his head when he laughed, penciling neat diagrams and math formulas on scraps of paper, catching a nap at the table after the noon dinner, his head resting on folded arms. That's the dad I knew. My husband, an air traffic controller at the Des Moines airport, had called to let me know that a B-17 was there just for a short stopover. So I rushed out with my camera and asked if I could see inside, telling them, that my dad had flown one in 1945. One man led me up a short ladder into the fuselage, then over a catwalk above the bomb bay to the cockpit. He told me to take all the time I wanted there. As I sat in the pilot's seat, a strong breeze 
buffeted the bomber. It swayed slightly. It sighed and creaked, just like Dad's barn on a windy day. I had forgotten about those friendly sounds. My thoughts turned to Dad's thorough instructions to my sister and me for our summer chores. How many half buckets of corn and oats to feed the hogs? How full to pump water into the cattle tank? And Dad patiently teaching me to shift gears on the Chevy's steering column in the barnyard the summer I learned to drive. It began to dawn on me that he would have used that same thoroughness and patience with young cadets. And I could appreciate that, yes, he would have been put in charge of a multi-engine plane and crew of 10. He eventually became commander of the even larger B-29 Superfortress, with a date set to leave for Saipan and combat over Japan when the war came to an end. While in that rare bomber, I was blessed with a glint of my dad in his other life. As a young lieutenant, in charge of aircraft instead of tractors, airmen instead of livestock. To exit the old warbird, I was told I could climb back through the plane and down the ladder, or I could drop out the way the crew did, through a small door right below the cockpit by grasping the edge and swinging out. There's no photographic evidence, but I did it, just like Dad had long ago. I returned to the other side of the chain-link fence to watch the fortress take off. The four engines were coaxed awake, one at a time. Did Dad also love that deep-throated growl? In a few minutes, the awkward to taxi aircraft headed toward the runway. Nose up, tail down. It lumbered behind a hangar. A roar signaled takeoff, and the plexiglass nose emerged from behind the building, pointing the bomber down the runway. By the time that sleek, rugged old warbird leveled off and disappeared in the distance, I could readily reconcile my dad the farmer with dad the young World War II pilot. And what a great story. Again, that was Joy Neal Kidney, and she's from Des Moines, Iowa. And this story comes to us from Des Moines, and thanks to our great station in Des Moines, WHO. And it's so great to hear someone trying to understand her dad's other life, that life before the life. And my goodness... Take a look one day at one of those B-17 flying fortresses. She said it was a sleek, rugged old warbird, and that it was. Indeed, it was the third most produced bomber of all time, and it's unimaginable that we could have thought of even winning the war without our great industrial capacity. Join Neil Kidney's story, her father's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. Kevin Briggs is a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped to prevent some 200 suicides. During his career, he was called to the Golden Gate Bridge about twice a month to respond to someone poised to jump from that bridge. Here's Kevin recalling one such encounter. We received a call of an individual over the rail and standing on. It's called the CORD, C-H-O-R-D. And I was the sergeant on duty. We worked 12-hour shifts. It was starting to, to get dark out. I had a new commander for our area office. He's the guy in charge. And I told him, hey, I'm going down there. It's almost 6, but I want to make sure everything goes smooth and see if I can do anything to help. So he goes, okay. He goes, but I want to go with you. He was new. He wanted to see this. We get down there. One of my officers is engaging this individual over the rail. He is standing on that cord, hanging on to the cables and looking down. So I just wanted the officer to know that I was there. So I touched his shoulder. He looked back and saw me. But the gentleman he was speaking to looked back and looked right at me also. And he said, you're the negotiator, aren't you? No, sir. I'm just here to help whatever we can do to get you back over and get you some assistance. He continues to look right at me. He goes, you have three master's degrees, don't you? I bit right into this one. Yes, sir, because that's a hook. That's what we can use to extend the time with these folks. So the officer, being the very smart and intelligent man he did, sees the guy engaging me, so he does this. He steps to the side. I would have done the same thing. Now it's on me because he's engaging me. He's under the influence of alcohol, very emotional as most people are up there. He's going with his mood up and down and up and down. And I'm going with him, and it doesn't, it's not going very well. I'm not able to connect with him that well. He's not giving me much information. And he keeps looking down, and I tell my commander, you know what, this isn't going very well. This, this may go bad. You might want to step back in case he goes. He goes, no, nope, I'm going to stay right here. Okay. So I keep going, and we found out. We, what we call hooks, things that I can connect with him, whether that's family, whether that's something sports that we can connect with. We found out about his family, and I continue with that. How would your family feel, do you think, with you gone? And we expanded on that. It was going well. And then all of a sudden, he just turns around, holding on that cable, looks at the water, and starts doing this heavy breathing. And to me, that's a big indication that he's going to go. So I had heard of a technique, and the only time you can really try this is during this type of situation. So I did this. Hey! It's to snap him out of that sequence of what he's doing, whether they're counting, heavy breathing, and it worked. And it worked well. And he turned around, and he was angry at me for doing that. But we reconnected, and I said, hey, brother, I'm here for you. I don't want to see you do anything. So we talked about this for a while and kept going about the family. I kept focusing on that. He decided, okay, all right, you listened, I'm going to come back over. So he did on his own. Fantastic, fantastic. We got him some help. We take him to a hospital. And that's not a movie that he's involved in. That's real life. And he's got to figure out how to make a connection. And if you noticed, he used the word listen. And he did. Because you can't connect to somebody if you don't listen to them. 
And you can't go into these things with a plan because everybody's different. And how calm he is and what he's like, it's just, he's just already, you know, he's got that, just the perfect demeanor to figure out how to do that. And my goodness, he's not in a rush. Here's Kevin telling the story of another encounter with a would-be jumper. Coincidentally, this man was named Kevin, too. There again on the Golden Gate Bridge. I received a call of a man over the rail. I responded with my motorcycle on the sidewalk. Down there, I saw him on the sidewalk. When he saw me, right over the rail, I thought he was gone. Around the two towers of the bridge, it's just this small pipe. Kevin stood on that small pipe for 90 minutes. During that 90 minutes, my knees were hurting like hell because I was kneeling down, talking to him so he could look down at me so I can empower him. That's what this is all about. For most of this, except for four or five minutes, I listened. Kevin spewed things out and was crying. His birth mother had abandoned him. His depression, all these things, school, being bullied, all these things had taken a toll on him and nobody had listened. I say it's very easy to listen, but actually it's really not. If you're giving them their full attention and you're hearing what's going on, instead of your own agenda and trying to think of, okay, how can I top that story? What can I do? What's my response going to be? If we can just take this in and listen, it's very difficult to do. We're not taught to listen. We're taught to read, write, do math, all these things. We are not taught to listen. How we do things when we're up on that bridge, we use active listening skills. Open-ended questions, paraphrasing, summarization, I messages to connect with these folks. High emotions equals low rational thought. So we try to stretch that time out as long as we can. If I would just walk up and say, go back over here, what are you doing? For one, the uniform scares people. It does. I know that. We walk up slow. We approach slow. I ask their permission to come up and speak with them. I'm going to empower them as much as I can. Whatever hooks that I can get, family, friends, sports, whatever it is, we're going to go with that, and we're going to talk about that, and we're going to expand on that. We expand that time, allow the rational thought to come back up, and this is basically how it works. This is what we do. Some of the damaging phrases that we do not use, calm down, really gets people angry when you say that. More, you should. You should. They don't like that either. Nobody likes hearing that. You should do this. You should do that. Doesn't work. Have you tried this? Works much better. Have you tried this? Why? Places blame. Makes them very angry. Makes us angry. Why did you do that? Why are you here? You're not getting the understanding of what's going on. And I understand my favorite. Do we really? Do I understand when he's over that rail? No, I may have depression, but it doesn't go to that level. I don't understand. But, so if I understand you correctly or if I hear you correctly, and they'll tell you how they feel, and we can correct that. Very, very important. Kevin did come back over that rail that day after that 90 minutes. We were invited to New York City, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and he spoke there. And he actively speaks now 
to people about what happened during his life. How did he get to that level? He didn't even know how to get to the bridge. He doesn't remember even driving to the bridge that day. But he got there, and he was over the rail. And it wasn't I saved him. I have saved nobody. Nobody, not one person. I may have been a conduit, but these people come back over the rail. It's them doing it. They're the ones that make that decision. It's easy to let go and fall. Very easy. It's much harder to come back over that rail. He's had those same problems when he came back over. They're there. They're not going away. But he faced those. Pulled up his bootstraps. Went head on with them. He still has issues. We all do. But he's here. And he's doing really well. And that's Kevin Briggs, a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped prevent over 200 suicides. And by the way, you can learn more about Kevin Briggs from his book, Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair, or go to his website, www.pivotal-points.com. And by the way, it's so true what he said about listening. It just doesn't get taught. And we're taught how to read and write and perform and debate, but not to listen. You know, in Proverbs, well, it says no one is as deaf as the man who will not listen. And Stephen Covey had written so beautifully and brilliant about listening and said most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And that skill set that Briggs is talking about, we can all use a little bit of help on that listening skill. And boy, those bad words, calm down, you should do this or that, and so true about I understand. No one wants to hear that. My goodness, this guy should be teaching courses for all of us. Kevin Briggs's story, a California Highway Patrolman, retired here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show. Art, sports, history, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. While you're there, sign up for our free and terrific newsletter. You give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our five best stories each week, direct to your inbox. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we love talking to authors, and today we have a longtime journalist, Amy Sutherland. She's done all kinds of writing. She's worked in newspaper industry, and in the early 2000s, she started writing books and working on magazine pieces. The book she'll be talking about today is entitled, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. Here's Amy. Amy. 
people are always trying to change each other's behavior. The only thing I started to do differently was I started trying to change my husband's behavior by changing my behavior first. I started using my own behavior as communication. And that's the biggest lesson I think maybe, or one of the biggest lessons I got from the world of animal training is that your, how you behave is communication. Amy Sutherland has found a unique way to interact with others. Many of us are trying to change those around us, which will leave us frustrated. What would happen if we just focused on changing our own behavior? Like in the 90s, late 90s, my husband and I adopted, uh, brought home a dog, our first dog as adults, a little puppy, an Australian shepherd we named Dixie Lou. And uh, she was a herding dog and she was a ball of fire. So my husband and I took her to a trainer and we had our sights set on teaching Dixie how to run agility courses. But to do that, we had to first take her to basically like a puppy obedience class. It was just my good luck that this trainer trained with all positive reinforcement, what uh, is called often clicker training. But uh, the, the thrust of clicker training is that training is fun and it's done with positive reinforcement, that there's no punishment as in there's the no uh, leaking, uh, jerking the leash, you know, barking orders at the dog. It's a much more civil and humane and intellectually challenging experience. That's basically how I first learned about animal training and not only how interesting it was as something to learn for myself as a human, but that it was a really interesting intellectual challenge to have that amount of self-control to learn how to work with another species and the payoff was humongous and that was getting to communicate with another species uh, in this case my gorgeous little dog Dixie Lou so I was super hooked on animal training and I had a friend who was an editor of a magazine and she knew this. She knew that I loved animal training and loved animals. And uh, she also knew that uh, I had spent a lot of time in France and that I had workable French. And so she gave me this great assignment to go to the set of 102 Dalmatians and do a story on the production there. The, The thing with a movie set is it sounds like like a super sexy story assignment. But the fact is, what happens on movie sets is that you stand around a lot. So there was a lot of time to kill. Uh, But it was just my good luck that given it was 102 Dalmatians, that there were all these dogs on the set and with their trainers. But anyhow, it turned out they had all gone to the school I had never heard of. And it was Moore Park Community College's exotic animal training management program, which has the appropriate acronym of EDEM. Um, and this was really the Harvard University, is the Harvard University for animal trainers in this country, and it has a reputation internationally, too. Um, so if you want to get somewhere in this field, you ideally want to go to the school. So this, like, st- actually, it struck me as almost something made up. But, uh, you know, once you get into the world of animals, it seems like anything's possible. So uh, a few years later, when I was looking for a book idea um, for my second book, uh, I 
remembered this school and um, thought that that had the potential for a book and uh, I was completely right. It had more than enough material for a book and I spent about a year and a half following these students. I was following them as they learned how to work with everything from emus to wolves to boa constrictors to tigers to uh, they had a trained hyena. They had loads and loads of parrots and they used the same progressive training methods using positive reinforcement to work with these animals and to get them to do all kinds of amazing behaviors. But it also became a, more of a life-changing experience for me than I expected because to learn how to work with these animals they had to learn sort of almost a philosophy. They had to learn a different way of thinking and um, that way of thinking really started to get under my skin. I started to realize that the way that they were working with these animals and the ideas they were using and techniques that they were using, that if they could work with these exotic animals, that it might make sense to start using some of these ideas to improve my own personal relationships and the, the relationship I thought I would try some of these ideas with was with my marriage, <laughs> with my husband, with the homo sapien known as Scott Sutherland. One of the first times I did this, which I've, I've, I ended up writing about for the New York Times, was uh, my husband is a perpetual key loser. And this is a behavior that sort of charged in our house, meaning he would be looking for his keys, he'd be stomping around, and it was really hard for me to ignore the stomping. And so I would somehow always get involved with him looking for his keys. And sometimes I would help him actually look, or sometimes I'd make suggestions of how he could avoid this in the future. That never went over very well. But it would just end up turning to this drama. One of the lessons they teach the students when they work with the uh, exotic animals is that you should basically ignore behavior that you don't want. Meaning, when you pay attention to behavior you don't want, you are in some way potentially reinforcing that behavior. Say, for example, a dolphin trainer asks a dolphin to do a, you know, some kind of cue, like flip or whatever, but the dolphin doesn't do it, or the dolphin instead decides to spit water on that trainer, the trainer will studiously ignore that behavior. Because if they respond in any way, that dolphin might think that that was pretty much fun and squirt water on them again. So I use that same sort of thinking. The next time my husband lost his keys, I tried what a dolphin trainer would do, and when I heard the stomping and the harumping, I just ignored him, and I did not get involved. And the next thing I knew, my husband had found his keys, and, you know, no drama, and I had actually felt kind of like I had wasted years and years of my life helping him find the keys in the past. So I ended up writing about this sort of new approach to my marriage with the help of animal training for the New York Times for their Modern Love section. I got an overwhelming response that I didn't expect. Within a week, I was signed up to go on to the Today Show. 
I had a movie deal that was in the works, and I had a book deal that was in the works. So it turns out that people <laughs> really need help with their some of their marriages and that I had found something that might do the trick for a lot of people. That is how I ended up writing my third book, which is what is called What Yamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. It's sort of the story about how I changed my thinking about how to deal with the human relationships in my life based on what I had learned from the school for exotic animal trainers. And when we come back, we continue with Amy Sutherland, her book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. More importantly, her story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to author Amy Sutherland, the writer of the book, What Shamu Taught Me About Life, Love, and Marriage. And she's been telling us the story about her visits to the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program in Moore Park, California. She wrote a column about her experiences there and how she began to use the technique on her husband. By the way, I love that she called him Homo Sapien, Scott Sutherland, and Homo Sapien Lee Habib need similar training. I don't just lose keys. I lose everything. Let's return to her story. After I wrote that column, some pe- I got actually mostly positive responses to that. But you know, some people were sort of bothered by it and they it didn't surprise me. Uh, one of the things is they said is that, you know, why can't you just tell your husband um, what you want him to do? You know, like, as if I hadn't tried that for most of my marriage. I mean, that's what we're all doing all the time, right? We are, you know, uh, we're all trying to change each other's behaviors, but we tend to do it verbally. And we tend to do it often negatively, like with uh, criticizing or nagging or going on and on and about how we feel about something. It becomes very clear when you work with animals because you don't have that verbal component. All you have is your behavior. So you don't get to go back to an animal and say, oh geez, what I really meant was blah 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 Or, you know, hey emu, I really don't like it when you, you know, try to whack me with your head. That I saw the power of that with all these amazing things these trainers trained. So what a lot of people were missing is that, yeah, I was trying to change my husband's behavior, but I changed myself first. And the, the, the sort of end bonus for that, which I didn't think about at the time, turned out to be that in doing this, it made me a calmer person it made me um, a more self. Con- I had more self-control. I got better at not taking things personally. It had this sort of transformative effect on my own personality. And since then, I would say that uh, it had the effect on my marriage of one. I quit nagging because one of the rules of animal behavior is that if you're using a technique and it's not working, it's not having any success, then you should stop doing that. 
I mean, that seems so obvious, but how many of us just keep repeating ourselves and nagging? I mean, I certainly did. So I stopped doing that, uh, and that was a relief to my husband, I'm sure. It certainly actually was a relief to me, I found, too, to not hear myself saying the same old thing again. What is the benefit of reward versus punishment? But the truth is, what most people don't know, is that all these ideas that inform modern animal training came from the world of human psychology. They came from the world of B.F. Skinner and um, behavior science. What he found is a living organism learns the most effectively when they are rewarded as opposed to being punished. This was, uh, you know, he studied this, he trained pigeons, but he basically was, you know, rooted in a scholarly, academic, psychological, human psychological world. To really be an effective trainer, you have to look in the mirror and sort of understand what it is that you're doing uh, that might be reinforcing uh, other people's behaviors. You know, how could it how could it start with you? You know, there's there's times it's not, but you have to always think about that and think about you know what you could be doing differently. The other thing that I had uh, I thought a lot about is um, uh, is in in the training world they have a saying that's called know your species and uh, what that means is that you understand the species of animal that you are working with meaning is it does it does it like to sleep at night does it like to sleep during the day does it uh, does it like cold weather does it like hot weather I thought about that with the people in my life like what were the behaviors about them that were dialed in, that were just like too much a part of their wiring, ones that I really am, was were never going to change or had to think about what was reasonable to expect. Like um, my husband, you know, I had not really expected to try to get my husband to quit losing his keys. That was, you know, he, he tends to be a kind of thinky person and he's often sort of, you know, not, you know, thinking of other things while he's doing, you know, the normal things like putting his keys down somewhere so he's not keeping track of them. Um, I, instead of putting my sights on that behavior, I set my sights on changing what happened when we looked for his keys. Our lives would be much less frustrating if we didn't take things so personally. This does not mean we don't have feelings, but instead we see outside of ourselves and practice empathy. Because people have some of these behaviors really wired in, and also, in addition to that, you might take how somebody is responding to you personally when in fact it's got to do with something other than you. So I learned to take things less personally. So, for example, uh, in the train, in the animal training world, uh, trainers, one of the big rules is that you do not take anything personally. You do not say they really discourage the students from talking about the animals liking them or not liking them. Because um, that's just too uh, anthropomorphic of a view. That is when we attribute human characteristics to non-human entities. They wanted them to always have a neutral sort of idea of what the animal was doing and not make it some uh, 
highly charged or emotional reason for why an animal was doing something. Because when you think that way, you might have trouble seeing why an animal is doing something. So I started thinking about that with people and thinking about when was the when were the times that I was taking what somebody did personally when in fact it had nothing to do with me. How has Amy's life changed in light of all this? I mean, I think one of the strongest things I learned is when is to know when to not respond. I've gotten so much better at that and to just you know, when I, it's the idea that, you know, that one of the things the trainers say is you get what you reinforce, right? That's like a universal rule. And uh, I think that's one of the most brilliant, boiled down uh, sort of approaches to life I've ever heard. So if you get what you reinforce, then by, you know, you start to think about, you get much better about not reinforcing and knowing when to either not say anything to leave the room, to disengage somehow. But she doesn't just practice these ideas on others. I mean, the thing is, is that I use a lot of this stuff on myself to understand like when I can think through something and when I can't, when I should be doing online checking and when I shouldn't be. Because you gotta be real with yourself about when you're clear in the head and what you can expect out of yourself. A lot of people are uncomfortable with the word training because it feels or sounds manipulative. But maybe it's not what we think. That brings up sort of like an issue that a lot of people have with training. A lot of people have a negative connection to that word. Oddly, because we have weight training and people train for sports and... There's a lot of positive ways it's used with people, but a lot of people associate the word training with dog training. And dog training traditionally, unfortunately, was very negative-based with a lot of punishment. That has changed, thank God. But I think that when you use that word, people often get their hackles up. Fact is, for me, is I think of the word as training, I equate it with teaching. I also equate it with communication. I think the world is slightly changing about that. I think there's a a movement in this country. I actually spoke at a conference this summer, and it was a conference called Convergence. And the convergence was that half the room was animal trainers and half the room were people who are already using these ideas with people. So... Uh, there's a form of clicker training that's called tag teaching, and it's basically being it's it's using the clicker with humans, um, and it's use they're using it the same kind of like bare bones technology to teach uh, people how to work on assembly lines, to help people improve their golf swings to help surgeons learn how to tie uh, surgical residents, how to tie uh, surgical knots properly. They find that the same system of using a, a sound to mark when somebody gets something right works with humans just as it does with animals. So I think someday I won't seem like such a weirdo. <laughs> it's my hope. <laughs> when you begin seeing outside yourself, you start to see animals and people as individuals. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Amy Sutherland. And again, her book, What Shamu, taught me about love, life, and marriage. 
And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear and see all that we do. And send us your stories, your relationship stories, your lost stories, your love stories, any old story. Send them into OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll do our best to turn them around and put them up on the airwaves for you, for all of you. Again, Amy Sutherland, her story, her book, here on Our American Stories. Our American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, and they work hard to help small business owners grow through good and wise public policy and have those small business owners live the American dream. They are the engine of economic growth in our great country. And Alex Cortes today brings us today's American Dreamers story. Joe Ficalora, as you could probably guess, comes from Italian immigrants. My grandparents are the ones who came. My parents were both born in Manhattan. So my, my mother was born on the Upper West Side. My father was born in the slums on the east side. And even though when they went to school, neither of them could speak English, because even though they were born here, they grew up in an environment where no one spoke English. Their parents only spoke Italian. Their friends only spoke Italian. They didn't speak English. So they both went to school. At school, they had to learn English. My mother, think about when this was. It, it might have been 19... 29, 28, 30. My mother not only had to learn English, but she was a female. And she graduated high school on time. That was not a common thing. My father graduated high school. That was not a common thing. These are the children of Italian immigrants in Manhattan. You know, many, many immigrants, one, might not have gone to school. And two, even if they went to school, they never really participated in school. And many of them dropped out of school, you know, at an early age. Because remember, the immigrants were treated differently. So, so for example, the Irish were beat up all the time. By who? By the American Brits, right? And, and the Irish were Catholic. And they were beat up for being Catholic, you know? So, so, so the, the reality is there's a long, long history in the United States of people that are established kicking around people that are not. And, and there, are, there are various movies that have been made about the topic and books that are written on the topic, and it is the reality of, of who we are. And, and, and to some degree, a lot of the people that moved west did so because there it was different. Everybody was new arrivals. So you went to a little town in the Midwest 
and, and whether you were from Ireland or New York or, or someplace in Georgia, everybody was new and everybody needed to work together to keep from dying. But by putting that aside, in, in, in my case, my parents, they met when they went to work. They both were sewers. They explicitly wanted their children to speak English. So they went out of their way to never speak Italian to us, to tell us that we always had to speak English. And, and they would only speak Italian when they didn't want us to know what they were saying. But, but priority one for them was that we'd be American. My experience was that at age 15, I walked one and a half blocks to the local grocery store. And I worked in the local grocery store. And then probably at age 17, I walked just about two blocks to the local pharmacy. And then at the age of 18, I walked a little bit further down that block to the local bank, which was Queens County Savings Bank. So this is the 60s. So, so I, I don't even know. My, my salary might have been $62 a, a week. I worked as a teller. And at that time, we didn't have conga lines. We had a line. So everybody had a line. And I had very experienced tellers, men and women, that had dedicated themselves to being tellers, working in that branch that had a line and had customers. I was fast. And, and I was, you know, accurate. So, so I didn't have losses that presented a problem because I was so fast. And by choice, lots of people got on my line because I was so fast. And that branch would close every Friday at 8. And the last customer would often leave well after 11. Because the bank floor was filled. It was a big banking floor. It was filled with people. In some cases, waiting online getting cash for their check, going back to the desk, counting their money, putting some of it into a deposit, getting back online and, and depositing money, and then going home and telling their wife, I put $100 in the bank today. And they don't tell them how much money they took home. She, she gets some money to buy some food, but you know, we don't discuss that. But I put $100 in the bank today. <laughs> you know? so, so the reality is that in that environment, I was a utility employee, meaning that if somebody didn't show up that was involved in selling e-bonds, I might be the e-bond teller, or I might work in new accounts, or I might work in safe deposit. So I was their utility person. Basically, they had confidence that I could do any of the jobs they assigned me to do. So I did all that, and I was going to college. So then the, the Vietnam War came. So I left the bank, and I went into service. And while in the military, Joe's world widened like never before. So, so as I grew up, I thought everybody was Italian. Then I thought anybody that was important was Italian. You know, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra. I mean, anybody that was... That was in my world, you know, it wasn't the, the mayor, although there was an Italian mayor, LaGuardia, right? You know, the airport was named after an Italian, you know? 
So, so in, in any event, I went from thinking everybody was Italian to realizing that, that most people were Italian. And, and by the time I went to school, I was exposed to people that, that weren't at all Italian and teachers that didn't have any high regard for Italians. I've seen things written about Italians who were brought to the South, who worked to their death in the fields. In other words, a, a black was perceived as an asset to be kept. An Italian was perceived as an asset to be wasted. In essence, the throwing away of the Italian was not an uncommon thing, whereas the black could survive and continue to provide services, the Italian would die. And, and this is 100, maybe 150 years ago. It's not as though this is something that was happening you know, when I was in Vietnam. And the population of Italians going back 150 years was relatively small. So, so if you had a, a cotton place in Georgia, you didn't have many Italians. And if, if people arranged for you to get a, a, a truckload of Italians, you worked them until they died. And nobody cared. But I didn't actually see racism until I got into the military. Because in the military, once I left New York, I was in Fort Benning, Georgia. I was there with people from all over the country. They didn't have exposure to many Italians. They didn't have a high regard for Italians. Fortunately, it, it did not in any way preclude me from being successful in the military. So despite the fact that I was in this, this minority group, I did not have I had awareness of issues, of people that had attitudes towards Italians, but nobody ever bothered me. So, so I was the strong guy. I'm a little guy, but I was the strong guy. I was not somebody that they were gonna mess with. And, and I was the performer. So, so I was the guy that was given all kinds of benefits, you know, from the sergeant major, from my platoon leader, from, from the captain, whatever, because I could do something that none of them could do. So I went to Vietnam, and there was no issue in Vietnam. Everybody, everybody wants the, the American next to him. It doesn't matter whether they're black or Italian or something else. Everybody is working together to stay alive. When I came back from service, I went back to the bank because I had a job there, and they you know, liked the idea that I, I served the nation. You know, I... I joined the military. I wasn't drafted, I joined. So I went back to the bank, and, and the day I went back, the personnel officer who hired me became the president. He was the first non-WASP since 1859. He was Greek, and he was a Catholic. He was the first non-WASP to become president. In, in our bank, that was a big deal. He brought me into his office the day I returned and said, I'm starting a officer training program with you. I have all of the information from your service in the Corona branch. There was, we had this branch and we had a Corona branch and we had one in Kew Gardens and we had one in Little Neck, that's it. We had $448 million since 1859. That's all the money we had when I started. $448 million. 
So he started this, this training program. And at first I was in audit, and then I was in the controller's office, and then I became the controller, and then I became an executive officer, and then I became the president. I took what was a small local bank and created a public bank. So, so this company has created great value for shareholders. So our total return to shareholders was over 4,700%. Nobody has that kind of return to shareholders. When, when people retired from NYCB, New York Community Bank, the new name for the larger bank. They'd come to my office crying. They couldn't believe how much money they had. They worked for a local thrift. They never made a lot of money, but we gave everybody stock. And the value of our stock went up so rapidly that they were rich and they couldn't believe that they could send their kids to college. They worried about this for years and they didn't have enough money to send their kids to college. Now they had enough money to send their kids to college, buy a new house. And these are people that I had worked with, in some cases, for decades. So, so the good news is that even a local bank can be a great opportunity. Nobody knows, did I ever know that we were gonna become public and be worth so much money? You know, when I was a teller, of course not. Of course not. The, the reality is that environments that are not necessarily obvious can become a great foundation for a significantly better than expected career. Now, the, the sad news, lots of kids go to college and they think they're going to get a great job and they have these expectations that are far beyond the reality of the market. And many, many, many people get disappointed in where they wind up. And, and lo and behold, the, the, there is no escaping the fact with the massive numbers of people that go to college today that many college graduates never attain their expectations. And, you know, the parents may have spent more money on their education than they ever earned. There's a popular perception out there that almost everyone goes to college, but the reality is only a third of Americans do, and even fewer should go. Only 20% of jobs in this country require a college degree, which means that right now there's a lot of folks with college degrees out there, but there's not as many folks who are hard workers and have good character, traits that usually will be rewarded in almost any environment. And the distinction between workers is what they effectively can get done. And sometimes it takes more time and more effort and more willingness to accept responsibilities that go beyond their position. Creating opportunity rather than, than just falling into it. More often than not, the limitations put on success are by the individual. You only get promoted when you're capable and recognizes being capable. Now, a person who's a, a self-starter, who starts his own business, can make a lot of money succeeding in a business that he's always managed, but they're so rare. They exist in the United States of America, but they're so rare. The reality is most people get a job 
with somebody else. And that job results in them getting promoted and getting promoted and getting greater responsibilities and getting greater rewards and being in a position to be the boss. You could be a brilliant person and have a terrible personality. And, and your personality could literally create enemies. Nobody wants to promote you. Nobody even wants you to work for them. They don't even want to talk to you. You might do your job better than they do their job. And they may resent you. And the boss may resent you. I mean, if you've got a bad personality, you're not going anywhere. You know, there are very few places where bad people can get great opportunity. And, and you say to yourself, well, where could they go? Some place where they don't have to deal with people. <laughs> you know, if, if, they, if they're just providing numbers, if they're just providing an end product, they may succeed despite their personality. But there are lots of people that blow the opportunity because they're so ornery or because they're so badly capable of being liked. You know, if, if you think about the environment in which we all work, if you're a disliked person doing anything, your opportunities are very different than if you're a liked person. If you're a liked person, people that have different opportunities that you don't qualify for, they want you to get because they like you. There's a big difference in decision-making based upon that personal interaction. If people do not have a capacity to be liked or respected, they're not likely to be successful. We are a bank that has had decades of history of having de minimis losses. The single distinguishing characteristics between banks in the United States is not how much money they make, it's how much money they lose. And banks typically lose money in adverse cycle turn. So when the economy changes, and the values of assets decline, those that are exposed most to overvalued loans, it's not the property in the marketplace, it's the size of the loan to the value of the property in the marketplace. So many lenders overlend because the lender gets paid on dollars. It is common practice in banking for the lender to be paid on the dollars he lends. So if I lend you $10 million, I get paid less than I would get if I lend you $15 million. But the Belnord is, an, is a perfect example of a building. I think it was on Broadway, and, and the lowest rental in the building was 605 a month, and the highest rental in the building was $25,000 a month. This crazy disparity is a result of New York's rent control laws. When I went to that building, I was going into the elevator to see the apartment that was being renovated for Rudy Giuliani's brother. So he was going to move into the building. And out of the elevator came the vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. So this building had this low rent of 605, which was total rent control, and this high rent of 25,000, which was probably a combination of a couple of apartments, but the reality is it had tenants that were willing to pay that much to be there. 
We offered $169 million in the fourth refinancing of that building. $169 million to refinance the building. J.P. Morgan Chase offered $300 million. Credit Suisse gave them $375 million. Now that's absurd. Most of the people we compete with have lenders who are paid on what they lend. So there was a lender at Credit Suisse who got paid a lot of money because they lent that much money. Now Credit Suisse broke it up and, and, and sold it in pieces to lots of different participants. It defaulted. It couldn't carry $375 million. In other words, the rent roll couldn't carry $375 million. The rent roll is the total rental income for the owner of a property. People who have buildings like that depend upon the rent roll to make the payments. I mentioned this earlier, but I think this reality should not be missed. Who makes the decision? The chairman of the board? No, the lending officer. What is the motivation of the lending officer? Personal reward. The lending officer in all other banks is paid on dollar volume. So he gets paid more by lending you too much. And he hopes that everything goes fine. But guess what? If it doesn't go fine, he's already got the money in his pocket. He doesn't take the loss. The bank takes the loss. So lending, and, and this is common practice, whether you're working for Chase or you're working for a small bank, the reality is lending offices are paid on dollar volume. Lending offices are incented to overlend. Every bank, every bank that I'm aware of does that excepting us. For decades, for decades, we've never paid our lenders based on the size of the loans they do. We've required that our lenders explain how a loan went bad. That's a very, very, very different plateau. When, when you look at our losses, they're de minimis, even in cycle turn. Even when other properties are being abandoned, foreclosed upon, when the values come down, our values are going up because we lent on a lower value in the first place. And when we refinance, we're refinancing the increased rent rolls, meaning that the value of the property is going up rather than down. So, so when you think about the marketplace, there are various things that affect the value of real estate. In the case of our loans, we do loans to people who manage the real estate positively. They improve the real estate. They put in new windows. They put in you know, fire escapes that are required. They do a variety of things to increase the value of what they own, increase the rent roll of what they own. That, that gives them the opportunity to refinance at a higher value. Most of our competitors, not, not most, all of our competitors will in fact finance on the potential rent roll. We only lend on actual. So, so for example, in most cases where a bank overlends on that isolated property, they lose money. And you take that isolated property and multiply it by 10, by 100, by 1,000, they lose so much money 
that gets charged against capital that they don't have sufficient capital to survive. So the bank goes out of business when they've had so many charges that they don't have enough available funds to pay for the losses. So we have a long history of in adverse cycle lending more money because most of the lenders that are banks are in such trouble they're going out of business or they can't lend anymore. So in some cases, we in fact are the only available lender in this street in Brooklyn. So because we do it with consistency and because we do it within the capacity of the rent roll to carry the loan, it's the existing rent roll. It's not the potential, it's the existing rent roll. We do that with such consistency, we go through cycles with de minimis or no losses. That is unheard of. There are no examples of anybody that has lent the tens of billions of dollars that we have lent that have not had massive losses during cycle turns. And in many cases, they've actually gone out of business because their losses so depleted their capital that they didn't have sufficient capital to continue. With Joe's competitors, no matter what happens to their banks due to the irresponsible behavior of their loan officers and executives, those guys have already been paid millions and their financial futures are secured. It's the janitor at their bank who's really getting screwed. If the bank closes because of their irresponsibility, the janitor doesn't have a job or millions to fall back on. It's interesting you mentioned the janitor going back decades ago. So we, we literally would have our trustees would actually go to properties, inspect them, and tell the people that they meet with. We would require, if we're going to do a loan on a property, the person we're doing the loan with has to meet us at the property. And our people would go through the property, go on the roof, and, and make decisions as to whether we would do the loan or not do the loan. In some cases, it required that certain things had to be done. You had to change the fire escapes. You had to put a new roof on, whatever it might be. A janitor in one of the buildings that we would inspect, he would go and walk the property along. He bought four, ultimately, four buildings, five-story walk-ups, four buildings. He got loans from us. He had a son. His son today, his son, not his grandson, his son today, has over a billion dollars, a billion dollars in New York real estate, all of which he lent or borrowed on over the course of the decades following, you know, his father who, who literally taught him the business, over a billion dollars in real estate, most of which we lent him. So, so, so the reality is, if you do it with consistency and you do it right, the New York market, despite cycle turn, can be a very lucrative place to lend. So let, let, me, let me step back to uh, the unfortunate reality of the New York market. Many lenders in the New York market never inspect properties. So the janitor would never have learned anything because the property would go from one owner to another owner, from one financer to another financer, and the janitor would never see anybody that would talk to them about 
the building or the value. In, in the case that, that I'm speaking of, this individual was an immigrant, but he was smart enough to have a perception of what was right and wrong in the buildings that he was, because he wasn't the janitor of one building, he was ambitious, and he was the janitor of more than one building. And he was, he was smart enough to talk with our people when they would come. Most banks did drive-bys or nothing. In other words, if a guy in a Cadillac drove up to the, up to the door, looked at the building and, and drove away, the janitor never saw him. But our guys actually physically made an appointment, went to the property, and walked the property, which means they walked through the halls, they went into the basement, they checked the equipment, they went onto the roof, they checked the roof, they, they, they would potentially check the fire escapes, they'd go into an apartment and see the condition of the kitchen and the bathroom. So since our people actually did real inspections, and he's the janitor, he has the keys. So he would meet one of our people who ultimately, because, because we'd go back, we'd refinance. In other words, he didn't do this overnight. He did this over time. But I think the, the most important reality is he was smart enough that he brought his son along with some of these inspections and he brought his son along with what he learned and his son would participate in the process and and his son was ambitious enough smart enough that he could buy buildings at profit it, it demonstrates the viability of consistent determination of value a cultural commitment that allowed Joe's bank to avoid being bailed out by the federal government during the financial crisis of 2008, while so many of their competitors were. We, we didn't have any need to. We have not had a charge. Think about this. We have not had a charge to capital in 40-odd years. We had losses, but they were de minimis. We, we covered those losses in earnings. We never charged capital. Every bank that went out of business charged capital so much money that they didn't have sufficient capital to continue to operate. So all of the rules for the last many years require that banks build and hold much more capital than they had before because the regulator wants there to be a bigger cushion a bigger pool of money available to recognize losses. The, the regulator said that on multifamily properties, they would put a limit of 300%. So when you look at, at, at other banks, and, and you could just look at any of them, and there's material that has been written about them, there are banks that have been stopped from doing lending in the New York market because their number was like 270 or 285 and, and the regulator wouldn't let them go to 300%. We were at 850 and the regulator decided 
that we would have no limit. That is the most overt regulatory recognition in the nation that we have such a low risk profile. So we had no limit. So, so when, when, when I say that we have not charged capital as a result of losses on real estate for decades, that means through cycles that took out the Bowery, American, greater, dollar, Banks that had long histories in New York lost so much money that they literally blew through all of their capital. We have never charged capital. So of the 13 guys that I grew up with, you know, that we played ball and, and whatever, nine of them were either dead or in prison by the time I left when I was 22. So it was not a good environment. And so why did Joe turn out differently? Now, I think it was, and, and at the time, I, I would have not had this perception. I think it was the difference in my mother and my father. They were consistently always telling us, you need to speak American. You cannot speak Italian. They always were telling us, you need to do better. So we had three sons, four years apart, all three of us went to college. All three of us worked our way through college. We all got good jobs. My, my younger brother is the longest sitting principal of Newtown High School. That's where we all graduated from. So he went back as a student teacher, became the principal, and has been the principal for longer than anybody in the entire system. My oldest brother, he, he wound up going into the military, did very well, but then literally retired, worked for Shell. And he became the chief financial officer in a large local company. So he's very successful. My brother John is successful. He wanted to be, and, and, he, and he would only accept being principal at Newtown, which is where we all went, where my aunts went, where, where other family members have gone over the course of years, where I graduated from. So he went there, stayed there, and became the principal and has been the longest sitting principal in New York City. And, and I went to the local bank and ultimately became the president of the local bank and took the bank public. There's no escaping the fact that there is limitless opportunity in this country to succeed in whatever it is that you start doing, because as long as you could do the job, there's somebody sitting in a position, a decision position, that can judge. In other words, there are places where, where a minority might not be able to get promoted, you know, above a certain level, because of bias. But in New York City, if you could do the job, you could get promoted. And you've been listening to Joe Ficalora, president and CEO of New York Community Bank, the 20th largest bank in the country. And as he so correctly points out, it's his mother and father who influenced the outcome. It was how he was raised to speak American. Notice he said speak American, not English. And of course, that he needed to do better. And so there was some standard of excellence, some standard of character and care there that allowed him to do better than a lot of his friends who ended up, as he put, either dead or in prison. The American dream still alive in this country. 
And my goodness, proof positive is Joe Ficalora's story. And always, these stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, working hard to represent small business owners in the public policy arena. And my goodness, what we learn is that good, solid practices and incentives day-to-day applied over a long period of time can make a difference. Character matters. Choices matter. Joe Ficalora's story, a classic American dreamer's story here on Our American Story. 